we live in busy times where we, of course, have 24 hours to do 36 hours worth of things, certainly. But the places that we, at least I find that we have the strongest ties to, that we feel uh, the most embedded, that we feel the most loyalty, that we feel the most like we belong, are the places not where things are done to us or for us, but the places where things are done with us. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 289 of the Leading Learning Podcast, which features a conversation with Lowell Applebaum. Lowell is CEO of Vistacova, a company that partners with organizations to support strategic planning, member engagement, and governance design. A certified professional facilitator, Lowell frequently engages volunteers, stakeholders, and staff through experiential learning approaches. Salisa and Lowell talk about leadership, strategy, journeys, hybrid going forward, inclusion as a silver lining from COVID, all kinds of mindsets, learning mindsets, incremental and exponential mindsets, and the difference between doing things for those we serve versus doing things with those we serve. Salisa spoke with Lowell in December 2021. I've been having a number of themed conversations, if you will, uh, unintentionally, as I speak with organization after organization whose leadership is desperate to be heard, right? We have companies, we have organizations that feel like they have amazing value to share, amazing knowledge to share from a learning perspective. But in this ever noisy world, the challenge isn't having for them the right value. The challenge is being able to have their members or their customers hear that value. So it's definitely the inquiry mindset, the idea of being curious, right? And and not just a little curious, but having an inherent mindset, philosophy, and, and ethos being radically curious about the member, the end user, the customer, uh, seems to be, I hope, something that will continue to shift uh, how we approach each other, how we're able to therefore hear each other in an ever noisy world. I like that notion of radical curiosity very much. And it, of course, seems to fit very well with a, a learning mindset as well. I think that curiosity, you know, often drives people to further their learning, deepen their learning. So that feels very appropriate for the Leading Learning Podcast to talk about radical curiosity. You know, I know that strategy is, you know, one area where you've done a lot of work um, and and tend to focus. So would you define or describe what you mean by strategy and then maybe talk about some of the stumbling blocks that you tend to see when it comes to strategy, whether that's in, in setting the strategy or in carrying it out? I love the question. I often say to leaders I'm working with that strategy is one of those meaningless, meaningful words, (laughs) right? You you ask 10 people, you get uh, a thousand different answers. I think in the context of how a leadership entity, a board of directors or other level of governance functions, then often being strategic is having the right balance of what I term as relevance and innovation the right balance of where are we paying attention to the past and the present, right? The things, the actions, the investments we make that makes us relevant to our audiences versus innovation, the future we see and how we get there. And strategic is being well-balanced in that. It doesn't, it's not an either or, it's not two sides of a pendulum. 
It's really more of a flow. In general, I'd say uh, strategy and the idea that there should be some inherent central agreement that's not calcified, that's not sedentary, but is a consistently ever-evolving conversation of direction that there's a unification in where are we going, right? And the strategy is the idea that if we have the vision of where are we going and we continue to explore that vision of possibility, the strategy is going to be that which guides us to make the right resource investment decisions, that which guides us to create the right cultural elements, that which guides us to seek the places of discovery and knowledge which lets us make better informed decisions and have better discussions that leads us to that place. And so strategy isn't just a a piece of paper with a set of metrics on it, though, of course, measurement of success is important. Strategy is an ever-evolving process, frankly, of of learning, as we're, we're talking about that. But then the inherent application of that learning to a direction that can see a greater accomplishment of a cause, of a mission, of a purpose, and of a future that you want to see accomplished. I like the focus on the fact that the strategy isn't calcified, like you're saying, it's sort of more responsive than that. And this balance of relevance and innovation, sort of the past looking as well as the future, desired future state, you know, involved there. So all of that sounds wonderful. Sort of the second question, though, I'd asked around sort of, you know, so then, you know, where do organizations tend to get it wrong? Where do they tend to stumble in trying to to kind of come to this this shared vision and this balance of of relevance and innovation? I think there's a few places where I have inherently positive mindset. Uh, So I'm going to say there's a few places rather than they stumble and there's opportunities (laughs) for them to be a little stronger. All right. Uh, I like the reframing and that's good. Right. I think part of it is that we don't do a great job always as we continue to cycle through leaders in any of our organizations of just because a leader with some time and experience or perhaps is even present for the authorship of strategy has this inherent assumption that a new leader coming on board, if you hand them a sheet of paper, they can live that strategy, that philosophy, that approach as well. And so I think there needs to be a shift in the idea of how do we create systems of learning and experience and exposure that helps build just as, not just knowledge, but skill sets and application in any leadership cycle so that the strategy an organization has as its ever living conversation is something that can be adopted, adapted and put into place by each generation of leaders that comes in. So there's definitely a, a, a period there, right, of, of training, of uh, onboarding. The second place I'd say that there's an opportunity really to rethink about how we're more impactful when it comes to our strategy is when we think about, especially from an organizational context, that a strategy is supposed to be something that helps advance a greater cause or a greater population or a greater membership, even if that's the type of organization, is is the strategy in place to do something for a group or with a group, right? And more and more, we live in busy times where we, of course, have 24 hours to do 36 hours worth of things, <laughs> certainly. But the places that we, at least I find that we have the strongest ties to, that we feel the most embedded, that we feel the most loyalty, that we feel the most like we belong, are the places not where things are done to us or for us, but the places where things are done with us, right? Where 
we go back to that curiosity mindset where where we have said we want to be a part cares about our voice and seeks it, right? Where it gives us opportunity that if we have interest to have impact, to have influence, to have input. And so strategy that works isn't just something that a central organization does in a bubble and then says, here's the results, but finds methodologies of visioning it, of implementing it, of innovating it, of evaluating it, that includes a more inclusive means to have hopefully many voices that find interest in that topic, in that area, to be a part. And then the last thing I'd say about in terms of we're going to go to, uh, I think you said stumbling blocks, but I'll say opportunities, (laughs) uh, is how well known is it what you're trying to achieve, right? Uh, ideally, a strategy is a different future you're trying to create, right? And how you're going to create it. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about, whether that's small, whether that's big. The idea is that something there's something today that has a greater potential for tomorrow. And what is going to be the path that gets us there? And that could be very tactical and quantitative. That could be qualitative. Uh, that could be impacting a small portion of a community that could be impacting society. But if that vision and the journey is not well known, and if there isn't along the way an invitation mindset about join us on the journey, then the full potential of that journey is never going to be realized. You're always going to be deficient in resource if there isn't an invitation mindset to a greater population to be part of the journey, to walk it, to contribute to it, that you can continue to add resources of knowledge, of perspective, of experience, of finance, of time uh, along the way. I find too many organizations set the strategy, say we're going to do the strategy, but then have sort of a single silo view of like, and that's what we are going to do as the central organization. Now, that's what we are going to do as we look to like build bonds of input, of invitation, and of alliance so that more of us can be on that journey together. We have two offerings that can help you get your presenters and your internal team on the journey with you. To help learning businesses, Leading Learning offers a range of complimentary educational resources, including this podcast. Leading Learning's parent company, Tagoras, provides in-depth, customized consulting services to help learning businesses assess their markets, formulate strategy, and select appropriate technologies. We provided relatively little between these two options historically. In 2022, we aim to change that with the launch of two new offerings. If you're looking for a practical, concrete way to help your presenters to deliver more effective, impactful learning experiences, we have a course called Presenting for Impact that can help you do just that. If you're looking for a structured, intentional way to make your learning business perform better, the Maturity Accelerator Program is designed to help organizations effectively leverage the Tagoras Learning Business Maturity Model in a way that aligns with their specific situation and needs. If you're interested in either or both of these professional development offerings, check the show notes for this podcast episode to learn more or drop us a note at leadinglearning at tagoras.com. Learn more at leadinglearning.com slash episode 289. Now back to Salisa and Lowell. You work with a lot of organizations and I'm going to make the assumption that many of them have, you know, a, a component of what they do that is about education, professional development, lifelong learning, making that available. How have you seen that role of education and learning evolve 
within the sort of broader organizational strategy for some of these organizations that you've worked with? So I think I've seen it evolve in a few different ways. The first is that perhaps once upon a time, there was a time where you got certain pieces of learning from certain specific providers or organizations, and that was really their single domain. And there's really been a proliferation of where providers of certain types of learning have said, well, we're providing skill set learning, perhaps we can also provide soft skill learning, right? A real expansion of opportunities and options in the space of what kind of learning is available. And so organizations that once had dedicated audiences that came exclusively to them for the learning they offered, more and more are facing competition. And that's not something that I, I find many organizations are built for just yet. The idea that they have to compete in the learning space because creating a positive learning experience and really that's across the various audience segments, whether we're talking about for a general membership, whether we're talking about by a career stage, whether we're talking about for leadership really is only first step, right, is having the right pieces of learning in terms of the knowledge that you want to transfer. Thinking beyond that, from what I see organizations starting to think about now is that having the right topics and the right substance within those topics is really a de minimis, right? If you, that's a minimum threshold. Beyond that, do you actually have instructors that are not just wise in the topic, but can express it in an engaging way, right? That have some base level of idea of how to be an educator, right? How to be a, an educator for a, an adult learning population. And then especially as we shift to greater platforms of virtual and to hybrid, how do we really create learning experiences that go beyond just what the subject matter is that's going to engage the learner, uh, that's going to make the learner want to come back and, and hopefully learn more, but it's also going to hopefully start to shift learning from a place of check the box, I watched that video, to some demarcation of progress, right? To some demarcation that lets the learner be able to see, to perceive, right? That there has been a shift in their potential. I, I can give a very personal example. For instance, currently I'm in a doctoral program and one of the courses I had to take, of course, in the program before you get to dissertation is a course on graduate level statistics. I'm not sure that's the course I ever would have chosen to take, but here I am. And what was amazing for me, right, was to scan sort of the curriculum, scan the learning that we were going to do over the course of eight weeks at the beginning, and for part of the language to look like the matrix, right? I'm like, what? I have no idea what half this stuff is, right? It's like all jumble on the screen. And to emerge eight weeks later, perhaps not fluent yet, but I know all the things are now, right? Like, the, like there's a tangible and very real sense that there has been an increase in vocabulary and awareness and fluency that has shifted my knowledge, that has shifted what I bring to the table in a meaningful way. And if we're talking about a learning mindset for organizations about what we're seeing at this moment, all too often still about how do we throw a webinar up there that someone will listen to for 60 minutes and that's success, as opposed to really trying to take on a learner mindset from saying an offer Right. If you stick with us on this learning journey, let's show you where you start and let's see if by the 
end or by a milestone that you can see, feel, taste, right? That you've grown, that you've shifted. And, you know, I'd be interested for to hear from you, like, how much of the onus of learning, which is supposed to be a process, not of providing information, but of helping someone grow, right? Like learning is for growth, thought growth, experience growth, uh, applicability growth. How much is that responsibility of growth on the learner? And how much is that responsibility of growth on the organization providing the learning? I'd be interested. Do you, do you have thoughts around that? Well, my mind immediately went back to what you were talking about when you were speaking about strategy, this idea of it being with us, you know, not for or to us. And I think that absolutely applies to learning, right? That it, it really is, it needs to be a partnership, like the learning business that's providing the learning experience, that opportunity, they, there's, there's significant work they need to do to kind of hold up their end of the bargain. But the learner also has to come and engage and participate and put in the effort. And so, you know, it really is this partnership. I love the partnership mindset, Salisa, because I think there's a few important things there. Our, our learning businesses, right, uh, are they going to offer one-off learning experiences that perhaps are good for the bottom line and can be used as a resource library of like plug and play? Sure, right? I'm, I'm not saying that's not going to exist. I'm not saying that for some audiences, that's not exactly like that. Those could be great in time, momentary. How do I do this? Like, let me jump in and out. But if we're talking about for the long haul, some building of a greater relationship of, of learning on a journey, then the concept of partnership you're saying has implications, right? Partnership means that at the beginning of the journey, there's a few agreements that you have between those offering the learning and the learner, right? You're saying, we're going to stick it out however long, four weeks, six weeks, eight. I don't know what the journey time period is per se. Those may be different, but we're going to stick it out together. And we agree that if, if we stick it out together, here's what we're hoping to achieve by the end, right, of this journey, no long, matter how long the segment is. And that, at the bottom line, some people are like, well, what I, I want at the end is a little badge I can put on my LinkedIn profile, <laughs> which is great, right? And that's one type of learning journey, right? But if we're talking about in this day and age where you can earn badges up the wazoo, right, for paying 200 bucks each, what I think people are looking for, if they're willing to invest in the journey of learning, is what actually are they going to be able to demonstrate as a place of growth and achievement that allows them to tell a narrative of how they're able to make a greater impact, how they're able to bring a greater skill set. And I think part of the learning providers offer has to not just be the knowledge transfer, right? It has to be how do you help the learner be able to demonstrate, right? the knowledge that is gained in applicability. Like how do you help to make them aware and be able to tell the story of what that growth has been along the journey? I think that's different than just putting some readings up with some reflective questions. Uh, there's a different experiential aspect there that I think the most successful learning, ex constructed learning experiences I see are more holistic and care about the whole learner and not just the class they're taking. I absolutely agree. And I that whole learner point of view, I think, in particular, really resonates just because it, if you're really thinking about the whole learner, it acknowledges all the other demands on their time and attention. It also encompasses the barriers that they're going to encounter when they try to uh, apply or continue to deepen their learning on a particular subject. And it also acknowledges 
what experience, prior experience they bring to the learning, you know, experience and, and that that then, you know, that they have, you know, past experience, current experience that is relevant and applicable. So that that whole learner point of view, I think, is very important. I think there's organizational application to that as well. If we encourage the boards of our organizations to enter into service with a learning mindset, you know, so often what we come when we come to any organization that their leadership is looking to come to a table to simply discuss and decide things, right? Which is limiting. It limits the voices at the table and the perspectives they bring. It limits the kind of like robust inquiry and conversation that can happen that can lead to better discussions and decisions. But if instead we were to set a mindset for leadership of organizations that actually we want you to be a learning board, right? And so in the exploration of key topics where there's the potential to, to pivot or reinforce where an organization is going to make impact, before we get to decision, how do we utilize the varied perspectives and experiences in the room to learn from one another? How do we think about what are the places of skill sets or points of view that would allow us to have a better discussion? How do we learn from them? Can we bring in subject matter experts by Zoom for five minutes to express their point of view so we can build our own learning, right? Learning is not perfection. It's a process of improvement, process of growth. And so how do we not stake everything on everything, every decision, but have a more pilot mindset, right? Have a more experiment mindset, have a greater mindset for leadership to be able to try things, to learn from those experiments, and then to make better decisions because of that. And that kind of iterative process is a different approach than just saying the judgment of success is by how well you decided things. Instead, by saying the judgment of success is not just the decisions you made, but how the leadership of the organization and, their, and therefore the organization itself is on a continual improvement cycle by adopting a learning mindset, experimenting, learning, recognizing setbacks, what do we need to do differently, reinforcing places of strength, and passing that on from a generation to generation. It's walking the walk, right? As well as talking the talk, absolutely. You know, I feel like the COVID era has exposed some shortcomings in a lot of organizations. You know, we've had this historic bifurcation of kind of meetings and events on one side and kind of education on another side. And so I'm curious about your thoughts around kind of the ideal approach to meetings slash events and then education as we go forward, as we kind of move beyond hopefully the, the pandemic. So I, I'd say two or three things about this. Uh, the first is that, and I just don't think it is the the years of transition into a pandemic era. At some point, many years becomes a, a time period unto itself. What's important is that at some point you need to transition from a crisis mindset to a strategic mindset, even if you're still in what's considered to be an ongoing crisis. And so to that end, I'd say a few things to your questions, Lisa. So the, the first is that I see too few organizations that are not still trying to use quick reaction methodology, which was needed at the onset of the COVID period, but is perhaps not the wisest choice for this moment in the COVID period or the moments to come in the years to come, to instead say that we're offering more diverse types of learning opportunities than ever as we are shifting or have shifted to a virtual platform, to now back to a live platform. We'll get into hybrid in, this in, a, in a moment, right? But through all the versions of those platforms, 
of where are we actually coordinating what we're trying to offer and how we're offering it. If I can make one wish for a resolution each year for an organization to do, one of those wishes would be that they took the time to step back and say, what's our content strategy, right? How do we know what those we represent need to know? How do we actually think from a place of intention, uh, creativity, and experience, how we offer those pieces across platforms? So that places that are of key importance, we may offer the same content actually across multiple platforms in different modes. There may be places that what's needed is a more advanced place of knowledge. And so we're going to, like in the next six months, offer right intro to intermediate before within later in the year, we can offer the advanced, right? So we build towards that. But I don't see organizations mapping out the strategic approach to the content they want to offer and the platforms they're offering it in rather than one-offs here with a meeting, one-off here with our learning platform, right? So instead, if you check the box of how we covered the topics, sure, maybe we did, but were they in any way coordinated? Were they in any way integrated? Were there any way made the learning journey easier for the learner? I think too many organizations aren't stepping back for that. The second thing I would say is the shift in mindset of who the learning audience could be. I mean, one thing that we've seen in this COVID era is that there's actually a greater potential for inclusion than ever, because all of a sudden, the thresholds of fiscal reality that would require someone to attend, for instance, a multi-day conference, right? It's so interesting. I hear organizations that are looking for, in terms of generational shift and early career right, participation, and yet, where they're providing most of the learning that they and like the, the skill building they want that early career to participate in is at a conference. And when you think about the populations that have the most latitude to take time off work, that have the most latitude in terms of familial obligations, that have the most latitude when it comes to like their fiscal pockets and what they're making and what they have, you know which audience has the least of those things, <laughs> right? And that's not even considering the global implications that even if there are national or, or local organizations, right, virtual offerings lower the barrier of having a greater geographical participation. But what that means is that we need to think about how we're offering not to take away from the power of in person, because in my word, we could talk all about right relationship building experiences and how powerful they are. I mean, much of the strategic planning governance work I do is in person for that reason. But in terms of like the learning opportunities and the integration between meetings and the integration between learning, how do we balance this moment of opportunity for actually market share increase by thinking about the differentiated audiences that our content could impact? And how do we create subpar but actually excellent experiences as we prioritize those audiences across platforms? One of the most disheartening things that I've seen is organizations are like, okay, so we've done virtual, we're going to do hybrid now, but hybrid shifts back to an amazing experience for a limited population in person, and then a secondhand experience, a spectator experience for those that are tuning in virtually after they've had a much more vibrant virtual learning experience out of necessity for the past year and a half. It's such a step back. And part of that is the cost ratio of like, how do you do this all? But if we're going to have a future-focused mindset, the concept that it's not just virtual, it's not just in-person, right? But that there's some integration of those two and that hybrid doesn't translate to like we have to do everything on both. 
but instead we have some content strategy that allows us to have a purpose for the content we're offering, a recognition of which populations need that content, and then a decision of what are the right platforms to offer that content in the right way would allow these one-off things of we're going to do this one in a meeting, this one on a webinar, but the never did the two shall meet. Hopefully those are things that start to get sunset. I think that's great. And I definitely feel the the same way around the intentionality that you speak of, the having the, the content strategy, really thinking through what it is you're offering and to whom and letting that drive the decisions about what happens online, what happens face-to-face, what happens in some mix of the two. That makes complete sense, both from the learning standpoint and the business standpoint, both. How do you think organizations need to measure success of the learner today? I think if we take the partnership we were talking about earlier seriously, then there has to be a partnership in figuring out what the right metrics or the right way to measure success is. For a learning business, I mean, revenue is important, but I would not want to see that be the only metric from the learning business standpoint. I would think that impact would also be very important, you know, meaning where are those successes in terms of the learner actually applying what they've learned, you know, back on the job or at home or, you know, in, in life more broadly. And then there's probably this, again, that if we take the partnership seriously, some aspect of really working with the learner to understand, you know, why are they engaging in this? Because hopefully it is beyond the sort of, you know, checking a box to complete X number of hours in, you know, a a given year. Hopefully they really are thinking about something beyond that. Maybe it's to improve the services that they provide to their own clients, patients, people that they touch, or, you know, to, to be able to move up to a higher paying job. You know, it, it could be all all sorts of different things, but probably getting them to engage because they're going to know much more than the organization providing the learning, why it really matters to them. You know, as you said that I have a, I had an, maybe it's an example, I'm not sure, but a thought come to mind, you know, recently over the course of the initial part of the pandemic, uh, USF, University of Southern Florida, their MUMA School of Business offered this class, right? This online multi-week class in I believe it was equity and inclusivity in the workplace. I right? took that one. <laughs> I, I did as well, right? right. And, and it was sponsored by some big businesses. It was free, right? Right. And so they got in the end, I don't know if you're, there's definitely hundreds of thousands of people to sign up. I don't remember how big the number went, but I, I believe it was over 100,000 in the end. So not a, a significant population learning experience, shall we call that, Right. And as I was thinking about that, right, it was a topic that is for certainly the right moment of critical importance and is success of that effort, the numbers they got, right? Mm -hmm. Is success of that effort, the number of people that didn't just sign up, but actually completed it and and earned the certificate? Is success of that effort that they went back a few months after and like, and sent a question out, a poll out, or invest in some interviews to say, how did this class actually make your workplace more inclusive or equitable, right? Is success of that effort, not just those narratives, those testimonials, those stories of impact, but that they then take that and say, okay, 
those that want to contribute, let's have some like design thinking opportunity of if this is a platform and a base, because they're rerunning the class now. So there's some foundational piece there, right? Of those that love this learning and want the next step, what would the next step up be? What do you need to further accelerate? Is that what success is for the learner? Right? So it becomes not just a one-off for a journey. And each of those feel almost like tiered levels, right? But, you know, through the context of that, like there's a magnitude there of potential for impact that feels like there'd be a great case study in how we define success for the learner from a, from a, uh, a place of clear initial interest to how far down the line do we have definitions of success so that it's continual and growing, Right, So that they're reoffering the course now. Someone who takes it in version two or version three that has these other layers built out, are they going to have a different layer of success? So it's not just getting the certificate this time, right? But it's going to be the other steps as well. And, you know, that example, you know, that's a, a, a MOOC. We have the massive open online course and we, you know, know historically those MOOCs just have abysmal completion rates. But then there's the argument that does completion rate tell you anything because maybe someone was looking for the information, the knowledge, the skills that were covered in, you know, (laughs) week two, they got exactly what they needed. They're even out there maybe, you know, applying it, you know, having radical changes in their own life because of that. And so then that gets totally lost if you look only at completion rates. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's true. I look I think this is part of what agreeing to what success is beforehand, right? Because there's multiple factors and and a completion rate is one is one factor. But would I rather have a hundred people that completed it, but then forget it? Or would I rather have 20 people that completed it, but can tell me deep moving narratives of how the completion has shifted their potential, the work they do, the impact they make. And I think it's harder to define success afterwards, right? When you, when you, when you look after, you're like, okay, this is what we got. That's what we meant by success, right? <laughs> like, is that really authentic? I'm not, not sure, you know? But that doesn't allow for a growing mindset. You can't say then, like, this is what we were hoping for. Look what we got. Okay, what do we need to do better next time? What do we need to think about next time? How do you think that different learning organizations, you know, take, say, an association and, you know, an academic institution, uh, you know, how do you think they can work together in partnership to, to maybe achieve some of these higher levels of success and impact that we've been talking about? You know, I was on a call last night, a kickoff call for an organization where we're starting the strategic planning process with them. And actually, one of the board members asked a similar question that they were saying, you know, the possibilities of what we need to think about for the future partnership feels like a huge place of focus for us. Because if we're going to exponentially increase the potential we have for impact, we're only going to be able to do that if we look for sources of resource that are not only internal. So I, I appreciate the mindset of partnership in terms of potential for where one plus one can equal three, right? And what I find, at least at this moment, is that partnership has become a frame for all too often, how can this benefit us, 
rather than a, a frame of there's a hundred different places we could partner. What are actually the right fit partnerships? And the hardest thing that leaders in any organization have to do is to not just say yes, but to say no, right? An organization between an association and university, right? An association could probably think of a thousand different universities they could partner with. But the point isn't like the magnitude of quantity. The point there is the magnitude of strategic quality, right? As we think about what are the priorities we are trying to pursue in the current cycle of the next X months or years, who are the potential partners that are closest aligned to the future we're trying to create? And then how do we have meaningful conversations of what we would each get out of a place of agreement that would perhaps mean more work on both sides, but would also feed into what each of us deem as a successful iteration of the future? And that's not one size fits all. That needs to be hyper-focused on why certain institutions or companies or other organizations are the right fit partner for this moment and an invitation for dialogue that you don't go in assuming that what you think is going to be the place of mutual benefit is actually meeting what they need. I, I feel like this almost, at least I feel like this goes back to radical curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> except, except instead of an individual mindset, we have an organizational mindset, right? The perception that I know what someone else needs that the perception that I'm going to be able to articulate what someone else needs in language that's meaningful to them, I inherently think is false. You know, we need to be, the radical curiosity needs to lead to structured and meaningful listening so that a partnership emerges, not because one person comes to the table and says, this is what it's going to be, but because two organizations can have a blended narrative of the future that they could create together and what they're willing to risk to create that future. And perhaps there's models that can be built so that's not starting from scratch each time to like start with, but not the assumption because of what the partnership is with one org is, is exactly what it's going to be with another org. And Look, I, I think we can look at that even through, uh, I know it's not learning, but through a lens of uh, sponsorship models. Just for those, right, the tier of pay this and get these benefits. And more and more, you see people not wanting to be one size fits all, right? You want the relationships that are going to be longstanding are going to be the ones where an organization is able to say, right, tell us what the top needs are you have in the next year. And let's then see like, how we make sure that what we provide can meet those needs. And that may change next year or the year after. And I think if we look at partnerships between organizations and institutions of learning or between anyone in the learning space, I think the same is true, right? Is your goal for the next cycle of year, two years, three years, just simply the number of learners and we can help feed that? Is your goal for the next cycle to build a leadership pipeline? And so we want to form a joint program that's going to emerge with an initial class of a dozen to two dozen potential executive learning learners in the field that could have right C-suite aspirations, let's focus on that, right? The places of mutual need leading to mutual potential, I think is just as true between learning institutions and will come down to the, hopefully the partnership built on shared metrics of success that then can align to what resources each organization is willing to contribute. And I think what you said probably gets to maybe part of why finding and creating these really valuable partnerships is so hard because it takes time to have those conversations, to not go in with your assumptions, to really listen to each other and to somehow arrive at those 
those those commonalities where you're you do overlap on needs or potential. I'll give you an example of a potential, right? I mean, this is there's a difference between an incremental and an exponential mindset. And for instance, traditional organizations, traditional membership organizations define who belongs to the organization by a single factor of who pays dues. And I understand there's a fiscal reality with that, right? And you want you want contribution in order to then say like affirmation that like we're with you for this journey and we want to continue to invest in it. But what if organizations, especially as we think about their relationship with academic institutions, right? Because almost every organization, at least the ones that have a professional mindset, are concerned about a pipeline. And so relationships with academic or learning institutions is is pretty ubiquitous. Like they, they want that, right? And what if instead of saying the only way to belong our organization is dues, if instead there was some other factor that allowed Right. For those that want to pay dues to pay dues and to have those like whatever the level of access to value is, but then to have a greater institutional affiliation mindset that would allow those that are in the pipeline, right, to allow those that are coming in to inherently have a tied relationship that the organization, instead of seeking one off members here or there by ones and twos, could instead expand community by hundreds or thousands through places of organizational affiliation with those institutions, right? And what is that open in terms of places of a greater community of potential learners that can hopefully hear each other's voices and learn from each other? I'm not sure what all the models are need to look like. It needs to be customized. But I, I do think that if we're thinking about what is possible in the years to come, is if we can, especially in this period of disruption where much of the places that we have held as tried and true forever have been put into light to say, is this really the way things need to be structured? There's there's the potential at this moment for an exponential mindset that I think could advance us beyond just incremental successes. What advice do you have for organizations that are in this business of continuing education, professional development, lifelong learning? What advice do you have for them to help ensure that they're going to be able to thrive in the coming year and, and even beyond? I mean, the advice I would have uh, is to prioritize the experience of learning as highly as you value the quality of content. And that if you are rigorous in how much you are vetting the quality of the content you're providing, which I, I hope they are, right? <laughs> because if, you, if you're providing bad content, I'm not sure how long you're going to be around. So let's say that they're, they're providing great content. Like how much is user experience testing actually a part of the process as well? How much is their investment in capturing the user experience and journey, right? How much are they actually structuring to have some before the learning starts, a number of key conversations of what do you expect? And then come back at the end to those same people and say, what did you experience? So that the gradation of success is not only the number of people that go through the course, not only the number of people that complete it, but also the qualitative of what was the experience of the learning journey didn't make impact. And I think that that brings about a different mindset of what success looks like and could really elevate not just the quality of the information or knowledge to transfer, but the impact of that knowledge and that transfer can make and therefore the reputation of who that company is. Before we officially wrap up, I just want to say, is there anything that's come to mind that you haven't had a chance yet to voice anything else you'd like to say? I think that the last thing I would say is this. 
if you're listening to this and somehow fitting in the time to listen to this, which is wonderful, but if the mindset you see of the people you're working with and the people that you're serving through crafting meaningful learning experiences, through crafting meaningful learning journeys, is ones of tired and exhaustion from just the overwhelming nature of the world as it exists at this moment, it's an opportunity for a little grace and space to give everyone right a little bit of care. And I hope that in the great value that we are able to produce as companies, no matter what our mindset or purpose is, that there's a greater empathy and priority of care uh, that we give to those that work with us, as well as those that we're working for. Because I think a greater empathy of care and a curiosity mindset would uh, help improve our world and culture across the board. As CEO of Vistacova and a certified professional facilitator, Lowell works with senior leadership to develop the skills of visioning and foresight and to set priorities and goals. You can learn more about him and his work at vistacova.com. And he welcomes connecting with you on LinkedIn. As I hope you heard, Lowell is thoughtful, insightful, and genuine. And I know he enjoys connecting with others so we can learn together as we look to create a better future. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 289, you'll find links to the Vistacova site and Lowell's profile on LinkedIn, as well as full show notes, a transcript, and other resources. You'll also find options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss future episodes, we encourage you to subscribe. And subscribing also helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Jeff and I personally appreciate knowing there are others on this learning and leading journey. And reviews and ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash apple to leave a review and rating. Lastly, please spread the word about Leading Learning. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 289, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.